a mentorship relationship. I'm the sage in that relationship. Uh, love you, Matt. It was so cold on the beach today. Like, it was very cold. I went into hyperthematic shock halfway through the sermon. I brought a windbreaker. A windbreaker from like 1973. I'm not kidding. Like my wife's grandpa's OP windbreaker, which was basically like a screen door. Just <laughs> nothing but chilliness. So today it just feels good to be here in this room with all of you. And it's women's retreat. And look how many folks showed up. I'm seeing some, I'm seeing some dudes here that don't, their wives are at women's retreat and they're here. That's double points when you get to heaven. Make sure your scorecard is marked correctly. That's bad theology, people. That's bad theology I'm, I'm espousing right now. Uh, it's so good to be with you. Um, okay, so speaking of Hume Lake, I was 17 years old, young man, much younger than now, the mustache not present, thus the authority absent. I was at the most important event, probably of a 17-year-old's life, it was winter camp. Not, not Hume Lake summer camp, it was winter camp. And we were in a contest. And how many of y'all know Kajabi Can Can? Does that word mean something to you? Raise your hand proudly if that means something to you. Like, okay, so when you're at Hume Lake, it doesn't mean something to you. It means everything to you. Hume Lake is about two things, Jesus and Kajabi Can Can. And sometimes not in that order, depending on where you're at in your attitude towards camp. But Kajabi Kankan, well, we didn't have that at winter camp, but we had this thing called broom ball. Broom ball. Basic sport, pretty darn lawless. Like, there's a ball, there are brooms with the broom feather part or the straw part absent from them, and just the hard plastic and goals. And it's supposed to be in fluffy, fluffy snow. But it's Southern California, so that was obviously not the case. I'm a young man. My team of, of juniors and senior boys, this was going to be our year to just dominate. How many of y'all know about that? Like going to camp and dominating on some sports. Anyone here know about that? Okay. A couple of you know about that. Jillian knows about that. He knows all about that. And so we decided to start off with, let's do like a psychological, let's start psychological warfare. So we come up with a name that will be so terrifying, so fear-instilling, that the opponents that face us will have no choice but to just make all kinds of mistakes. So we finally, after much debate, I crafted the title. I was proud of it. We called ourselves the Purple Pansies, the Purple Pansies. The next year, it was the Lavender Lilacs, because we thought there's nothing more demoralizing than looking at the bracket and knowing we're going up against the Purple Pansies and then getting (laughs) dominated by the Purple Pansies. So the strategy was pure masculine brutality. Just utter brutality. The dudes on my team, Chris Iomo, some of you probably see him. He's probably your therapist. Let me tell you something. You put a broom ball stick in this guy's hand, pure Freudian id, if you want a deep psychological (laughs) reference. Katie gets it. So the guys are just brutal, and they're going in with all the aggression. There's dust flying, shins are getting whacked, knuckles cracking. I think my buddy Jack lost a tooth. But I took a very strategic position in the game, cherry picking. Anyone know about cherry picking? Let's see. Cherry picking, it's that strategy whereby you go where the action isn't. 
All right, so wherever the mayhem is happening, you're not there. You're waiting on the other end of the court for a ball to get knocked loose, and then you deliver it into the goal. Again, it's broom ball. There are no offsides. It's lawless. So I'm the hype man, and I'm the cherry picker. We ended up absolutely dominating, mostly because of my nimble ballerina-like cherry picking skills. And all of the guys were like bruised and dirty and big smiles on their face. And I looked as cleanly as like a Sunday morning. It was really a beautiful thing. I chose cherry picking because I didn't want to get hurt. Like I would rather not get hurt. I'd rather just stay where the action isn't. Okay, that's my strategy in life for a lot of things. Recreational. And I'm that way with anything recreational. For example, um, I'm not going snowboarding. Not with you, not with anyone. I'm not going to go snowboarding. It's ridiculous. It's a terrible idea. Sliding down a mountain, falling down a mountain. Every time I see somebody with a broken collarbone, how'd you get it? Let me guess. Snowboarding. Exactly. You go to Bear Mountain, there's two lines. There's the line of like, go on the ski lift. And then there's another line. It's a quicker line. There's a guy with a bat. He'll just whack you in the collarbone for 50 bucks and you can save time. So that's That's my bit about snowboarding. Paintball, like, no. I, I've been a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for eight years, okay? And every time you go to camp, all the students are like, James, let's go paintball, let's go paintball. And they're bringing, like, their military issue, like, paintball masks and gear. And like, we got to go paintball. It's so awesome. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going paintball. And I've never done it in eight years. I love you, students. I will not go paintballing with you. And then they try to convince you by like showing you their bruises. Look at this welt. It looks like a black hole. Like, I'm not going paintballing. You're not helping a cause. I could go on. Mountain biking, ridiculous. Should never be done. <laughs> My philosophy with recreation is I'd rather not get hurt. Surfing, you fall. It's a nice, beautiful pond of water. You just kind of lightly find yourself resurfacing. Beach volleyball, maybe a little too much vitamin D. Other than that, beautiful sand. It's fun. It's safe. I don't want to get hurt. That's how I roll. So just don't invite me to anything that may hurt me. But we've been in a series. We've been talking about relationships. We've been talking about enjoying people in a divided world. And so far, our goal has been to lay the foundations for you, like, theologically, psychologically, sociologically, philosophically, anecdotally. We have deployed anything and everything in our arsenal to try to say to ourselves, to remind ourselves, and to remind all of us that human thriving, human flourishing, happens in relationship. Relationship with God and with others. That as a species, we are designed, we are designed for connection. For connection. And it's, they've been an amazing series of, of sermons, mine accepted, of course, but Todd and Matt have brought some amazing truths to us. But there's something that's kind of like the, the obvious but often missed reality. And that is, it doesn't matter how much stuff we try to get through our heads, try to force into our brains and our psyches and the pond of our minds. If you've been hurt, if you are a human being in this room and you have been hurt, 
The biggest question that can become a firewall, an impenetrable, unbreachable firewall, the biggest question you can ask is, what if I get hurt? Maybe it's the best thing to do. Maybe moving deeper into authentic, real relationship is a good thing. But what if I get hurt? Especially if that phrase ends with an again. What if I get hurt again? And some of you can probably think about it if you're being honest. And the cool part is I can't read your mind. No one here can read your mind. So you can think about it. But you can think about maybe a time where you said never again. Like no more for me on this issue. No more for me with this kind of a group. Maybe it's church, maybe it's friends, maybe it's in relationship. And you've just said, I don't want to get hurt. I'm tired of getting hurt. And that's a really powerful thing. And no logic and no preaching gymnastics are going to convince you otherwise. And especially when we get really good at it, and some of us do, and I know I, I am able to as well, get really good at the seeming closeness or like, I'm a pretty real vulnerable person, but I also have like a Jedi mind tricks of just being able to keep people at a safe enough distance, okay? So this can be a reality. This could be a reality. And, and what, what I would love to do today is so simple, like really, truly simple. I want to, as best I can, get out of the way and just bring that honest question to Jesus. Like bring that really true massive gravitational pull kind of a question to Jesus and just say, Jesus, what do you do with all of this? Like, what did you do with all of this? And so for the rest of our time together, I want uh, perhaps to think of it like this, like Mark, the gospel of Mark, the biography slash testimony of Jesus's life, according to this um, ancient and beautiful text, Mark, this will be the storyteller. And what I want to do is maybe function like a docent in a museum a little bit. So we will look at this really important picture. And I just want to point out a couple things and maybe some shading that you missed or a contour of the story uh, that might help us understand even better what's going on here. But it's, it's this uh, piece of Jesus' life that's recounted where the relational stakes had never been higher. The relational stakes had never been higher for him. The relational needs had never been higher. And, and it was a, um, a critical moment. What, what the sermon is not, let me just go here now so we can move on. What the sermon is not, it is not a plea for all of you to throw down every boundary you've ever had and become like, open the floodgates for every person into your life and your business and those spaces where they can then do the mayhem they want to do in your life. That is absolutely not. There are healthy boundaries. What, what I want to show you is Jesus' posture towards relationship with the crew that he was closest to. And what does he do when the stakes go up, and how does he respond to a question like that? What if I get hurt? Um, as a pastor, there's a philosophy floating out there, and I don't know anyone that's written it down, but in my 20 years of ministry, I've heard it quite a bit. And it's something like this. It goes, pastors, you need to be careful. Don't get too close to the church. Don't get too close to the people that you minister to. Because you might get hurt. It could end in some wreckage. 
So be careful. Keep a good, healthy space or a firewall where you don't really get close. Why? Because you might get hurt. And so if that's something, and you're just searching your heart and going, yeah, I kind of have some of those items, we're going to have some time for reflection. But let's just right now, let's just behold Jesus in perhaps the most relationally dramatic moment of his life. And let's just hear and reflect together. So if you want to read along, you can open up the, the, um, your paper Bible to Mark chapter 14. And we will begin in verse 17, Mark 14, verse 17. That was the Holy Spirit alarm. Church joke. Okay, thank you. You got to have a couple of those. You're at church, people. Let's open up Mark 14, and we'll start in uh, verse 17. And if you would like to follow along on the World Wide Web, the intranet, you can do that on your iTelephones or your smartphones, Um, or if you would like to, like your ancient ancestors in the faith, if you would like to just hear it, just listen. That's how most folks, really for most of the pre-modern world, that's how they encountered this text. So join in that. But we're just going to read and reflect. So the story, culminating moments in Jesus' ministry, he had been with a very select few within his inner circle, and masses on the outside, folks that he had cared for, loved on, provided for, multiplied fish and loaves, spoken authoritatively, healed the sick, cared for those that were disposable in society, brought near those who had been kept at arm's length, those who he had ministered to sometimes from sunrise to sunset. And then there was this small group that he let close. Some women, very important women, and this group of dudes. And Passover dinners in Jerusalem, a pilgrimage festival, the the Jewish world descends upon Israel and Jerusalem at the time. It becomes like the, the Coachella, if you will. There's a really trite reference to describe Passover, but you can imagine the campfires, the makeshift tents, the packed housing. Everyone's in town for this. And one common thing was happening across the terrain that night is that families, biological families, were getting together to have a Passover dinner, and Jesus does something very strange. He doesn't have it with his bio family. He doesn't have it with sisters and brothers. He has it with these 12 people that he's invested and let close to him. Let so close to him. Be careful, Jesus. Be careful, Jesus. You might get hurt. And we'll pick up the story in verse 17. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table, he said something something heartbreaking. I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me right now. And they were all saddened. And one by one they said, surely not me. It's not me. It can't be me. It's one of you, 
12, he replied, the one who dips bread in the bowl with me. That's how close we are. That's how physically proximate we are, not to mention emotionally, relationally, economically close we are and have been, and we are sharing this together, and you will betray me. Be careful, Jesus. You might get hurt. The Son of Man will go just as it's written about him. And then he takes this moment, I'll summarize, he takes this moment where he picks up the bread and he says, this bread is my body broken for you. This bread, it means more than just a ritual meal. I'm going to redefine the Passover. This bread is me giving myself, not just for you, but for the millions and millions of lives and hearts and valued image-bearing children around the world. And this cup is my blood poured out. Verse 24, the blood of the covenant poured out for many. And he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And then they sing a hymn together. And they went out to the Mount of Olives across from Jerusalem. And the story continues now. He makes another statement, a heartbreaking statement. This one doesn't involve one person that he has brought so dangerously close to himself. This one involves all of them. You will all fall away, verse 27, Jesus told them. It's written, he quotes Zechariah 13. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I'll go ahead into Galilee. And Peter declared, oh, Peter, Oh, Peter, we we love Peter. We like to bash on Peter. He's the favorite preacher, straw man. You could just say, well, that's Peter. Big mouth, big brain. But you know something? Peter was the most fervent and the most eager. Maybe the oldest of the 12. And he speaks up immediately and probably says, what others were thinking. He says, even if all fall away, I'm not going to, Jesus. You've brought me close. You've brought me dangerously close. For three years, I have left my trade. I have left my family. I have left my prospects. And I have seen you heal. I've seen you multiply food. I've seen you love those who are based on gender and ethnicity and socioeconomic status, outsiders, and you've brought them near. And Jesus, I just know the power of God is in you. I am not going to fall away. And Jesus says something heartbreaking again, I tell you. Today, yes, tonight, not later, not during a dry time when you're in middle-aged, midlife crisis, but tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to disown me three times. One, two, three times. And Peter insisted emphatically. The Greek term's like, All the more overflowingly, he said, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. I'll die for you, Jesus. You brought us close, dangerously close. You've shared your life. You've let us see into the heart of who you are. You've let us see into the mysteries of God working in your life. I will die with you. I will kill for you. We find out later how Peter feels. Be careful, Jesus. You might get hurt. Be careful. Then they went to a place called Gethsemane. 
a stone's throw away. And you can imagine this moment. The, the hill would be spangled with a constellation of campfires. And you would hear singing and laughing and some folks with too much Passover wine maybe singing a, a hymn and a song and young kids running around, parents trying to settle them down. It's, people's minds are on the festival. Their minds are on the joys. Maybe there's political conversations and debate going on. Maybe some people are trying to get some sleep. Because it's, it's a beautiful day. It's an important day, but it's just another day. It's just another Passover dinner. And there's Jesus. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter and James and John. Be careful, Jesus. Be careful, Jesus. You might get hurt. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed. Deeply distressed. And what does Jesus say? I'm Jesus. I'm above it all, floating three feet above the earth. Let me condescend to you lowly humans. No, that's not what he says. He says, my soul is so overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he asks them this, stay here with me and just keep watch. Just sit with me. What an amazing piece of history this is. What, an, what a remarkable passage of scripture. One thing that I, I, it overwhelms me to a point of almost tears, and you might hear me choking back a few, because this moment is so powerful that Jesus asks them, just sit with me. I just want you near me. As, as you reflect on that, this is, this is crazy thought. You, sitting in this room today, from all your different walks of life and histories and paths, you could have been a comfort to Jesus if you were there in that moment. You might not know your theology. You might not pronounce terms correctly in the Bible. You may not have even read much of the Bible. But in that moment, Jesus just wanted someone to sit with him. Just stay awake with me. That's all I need. That's all I want. That's all I ask. Just sit with me. That's a really amazing thought, isn't it? Amazing thought. And he takes Peter, James, and John and says, stay here and just keep watch. And going a little further, he fell to the ground and he prayed, if it's possible, let the hour pass from me. I don't want to go through with this father. He communes with the father. I don't want to go through with this. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. This cup of suffering, this cup of rejection, this cup of being hung naked for all to see in a shameful slave's death. I don't want to go through with it, but not what I want, but what you will, Father. And he comes back and his disciples are sleeping. Peter, be careful, Jesus. We warned you about this, Jesus. We told you about this, Jesus. Be careful who you bring near. Be careful because you might get hurt and your best people are falling asleep on you. Simon, you're, you're asleep? You couldn't keep watch with one, for one hour with me? You need to watch now. You need to pray now so that you don't fall into temptation. Jesus is saying, I know what's coming. God bless you, Peter. You don't know all that's coming. You've got to stay awake. I need you, and you need to stay awake, and the Spirit is willing, he says. You're very enthusiastic, Peter. But your body is weak right now. Once more, he went away, prayed the same thing. 
He came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say to him. They're sort of shuffling their feet in the sand and grass going, ah, I'm so sorry. Just, sorry, Jesus. Returning the third time, you're still sleeping. You're still resting. I needed you and you're asleep. Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Let's get up. Let's go. Here comes my betrayer. Here comes my betrayer. Like that, that one who has seen and been brought so close, dangerously close to Jesus, who has been with Jesus in moments where everyone bet against him and the power of God won the day. Moments where Jesus handed back to grieving parents a child. Moments where hungry, forgotten people left not just fed, but dignified and loved that face those lips that have kissed his cheek so many times in, in a sign of intimacy and love, that betrayer, Judas, one of the twelve appears, and with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders. A different crowd than you'd normally probably see surrounding the disciples. Normally it's a crowd of needy people. People excited to see Jesus. People that they're sort of playing crowd control, holding them back. This time the crowd is armed to hurt. And the betrayer arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi. And he kisses him. And the the men seized Jesus and arrested him. And one of those nearby drew a sword and swung it at the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And Jesus answers, am I leading a rebellion? Is that what you think I'm doing? Is that what you think I'm about? That you're bringing clubs and you're treating me like an insurrectionist. But the scriptures have got to be fulfilled. And Mark Chapter 14, verse 50, as we number it in the modern era. Maybe the saddest verse in the entire Bible. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Be careful, Jesus. Be careful, Jesus. Don't let them too close. You might get hurt. Everyone. In the next line, there's an individual who has nothing but a linen garment on sleeping clothes. And he had been with Jesus, and when they seized him, they're trying to round up whoever's with him. They grabbed his linen garment, and he runs away, breaking it, runs away naked. So desperate to get as far from Jesus as he could possibly get, that he's willing to run naked through a crowded hillside to just get distance between him and the one who brought him so near, so dangerously close. Be careful, Jesus. You might get hurt. The rest of the story we'll be exploring as we get closer to Good Friday and, and, and we'll celebrate the other side of the story on Easter Sunday. But right now, I want to close with just two reflections and they're actually personal reflections. They're for me. So this is like a big group therapy session that I'm going to work some stuff out. No, <laughs> they're for me. <laughs> Two personal applications, and maybe, maybe they'll touch base with you on some spaces of your life, and maybe they won't. 
but when we move to communion, there'll be more time for personal reflection. The first one's a bit more dramatic and maybe more specific to Bray and I and, and the world that, that the world of um, of our parenting and and um, being foster parents, but. One of the questions that is pretty frequent in the conversations around foster, foster care, and I love those conversations, by the way. Anytime anyone wants to have them, those are the ones I want to talk about. When you come up to me and go, is predestination real or free will? I'm like, okay, quick answer, let's move. Not interested as much. But you want to talk about foster kids, I could talk to you all day long. And one of the um, Themes that comes up a lot, you'll hear people, and, and I think it's honest and real, that will say something like, oh man, how could you, I could never do that. God bless you, but I could never do that. I'd get too close. I'd get too attached, and it would break my heart. Right? And, and, and it's so true. It's so true. Actually, at our training, through our agency, one of the things they tell you early on is they say, there's going to be a tendency to want to guard your heart. Because you know that the court will do all kinds of things based on very little information sometimes. And you might have to go through some big pain. And they say, please, we beg you, don't guard your heart. These kids have had nothing but people guarding their hearts from them. They need you to love them. Norris, you get so darn emotional up here. I think it's the red walls. And the haunted mansion-like lighting over here in the back. Okay. <laughs> and they say, don't guard your heart. Please don't. We beg you not to. And you ask, and I, I really mean this. This is not the pastor going, I'm such a good Christian. You should be like me. This is me and my journey. But after we lost Calvin, like I was so angry, and I was like, I'm done. And I, we'd, you know, driving to work, I remember one day just thinking, I'm done with it. I just, I, I'm so tired of it. Let someone else do it for a while. It's too much pain. It's too hard. And the idea of, you know, we're taking time to heal, but then getting back into it, that's too much. It's going to hurt too bad if it goes sideways again. And, and I, I'm not lying about this for the sake of the sermon. I'm not exaggerating. The image I get every time I think that thought is there's Jesus, and everyone has run away. And he comes back for more. Be careful. You might get hurt like Jesus. Be careful. Guard your heart. Guard your life. Because you might get hurt like Jesus. And again, probably most of you are not called to be foster parents. Maybe a few of you are. Maybe a few more than think you are are called to be foster parents. And God will work that out with you. And we'll support you and run alongside with you. But some, why do you come back for more? Why do you do it? Because darn it, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I just can't seem to put a nice filter over his life. I can't seem to domesticate it and tame it and take the sharp edges away. The rawness of it is so apparent when you just read the Bible like we did today. And so that's the captivating, compelling, and yes, troubling part about following Jesus, is it means if Jesus is moving left into more relational proximity and more relational danger at times, I'm going to follow him where he calls me to go. Powerful stuff. And the second line, uh, second application that's pretty real for us, and right now even, um, you know, 
the grieving process is a long thing. It's a messy thing. It's a chaotic thing. And, and I know that many of you in this room today are in the middle of some of un- unthinkable grief. And I know some of you have been through unthinkable grief, things I can't even fathom or imagine. I really can't. But in our journey of, of, of grief, especially when it gets like months after the tragedy, months after the hardship, you start to feel like I'm not allowed anymore really to feel bad and I should be better by now. And, and then it leads me to feel like I just want to isolate. Like, and, and Bray and I are literally sitting around the fire this, after, uh, this week and we're talking like we do every night. How's your heart? How's your life? Let's, let's exchange kind of hearts and, and enter into one another's worlds and and we're both feeling like, I just want to just move far away. Just kind of go somewhere. East Coast, find some other thing and just go. Just run as fast as I can. Because I just don't know what to do with all of this. And that, that pr- instinct of, the preserving instinct of isolation then has to s- square with the Jesus example of stubbornly remaining in an entanglement of Love relationships that have high cost. Now, you read the rest of the story, and you find out the fruit. You will see a Peter who would one day deny Jesus, and then within months is one of the most powerful advocates, public advocates, enduring all sorts of stuff in the name of Jesus. You see what Jesus saw in him, and you see the value Jesus saw in relationships. But I want to run, Jesus. Be careful. I might get hurt. And so... We're doubling down and leaning into healthy relationships. We're not running. And it's annoying sometimes. And it feels hard sometimes. But through some amazing therapy, our whole family's in therapy, the kids and us, and through letting in, again, not everyone, but letting in certain folks that I know I, I need to share my heart with is, is not because... It feels good always, but it's because it's the Jesus way. Be careful. Guard your heart. You might get hurt like Jesus. So we're going to turn to communion. And, and I just want to invite everyone to kind of reflect. Um, I shared some of my stuff because I have a captive audience. You're not really captive. You could leave any time. Matt's guarding the exit, actually, so you can't. <laughs> but, um, but for you, like, what is it? There might be a hurt deep inside or a hurt in your past, in your history. There might be something that you don't even recognize is going to be. And yeah, the music, come on up. Godwin, get on those keys, man. Bring us there, Godwin. Olivia, and there might be a space uh, or or some history that you want to just let the Spirit minister to you in and say, Lord, here I am. And for some of you, um, maybe you've just always been good. Maybe you've learned it from a long time ago, been good at having a million relationships, but not one of them really sinks into the heart of who you are. And maybe it's time to start praying about taking an adventurous, Jesus-following step closer into relationship. And, and there's going to be everything in between. But my encouragement to all of us look at Jesus. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you set an example that's not just a bunch of words or some preacher preaching or some slick, religious 
philosophy, but it's a life. It's a life lived in the dirt and drama of history and humanity. You've shown us something of what it means to be human and what it means to thrive and what it means in this broken world to insist on life. So we don't run today. I stand up here. I'm not running. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not playing games. I really want to lean into, Lord, the stubborn, healthy trajectory of loving you and loving others. Thank you so much for this place where we can reflect on these things and even practice these things. And now we lift your name up as we go to communion, taking the bread representing your body and the juice representing your blood. In Jesus' name, amen.